Just before we jump into this message, I want to add one other announcement to that. By the way, Kaya um, made all of those. If you if you ever noticed in the lobby, we have all of our values framed along the wall above the coat rack, and she made those for us. And so we're thankful for her gift and exercising it that way to bless us. Um, but I want to make mention that we have a dinner party coming up in November just for people who are newer to Trinity, or maybe you've been bringing someone who's new, and we'd love you to come with your friend. And so this will be Sunday night, uh, November 21st. We typically will have it right at our house as long as everybody's healthy. If not, we sometimes host it here right in the cafe at church. And there is a sign-up at the Info Center where you can just put down your name. And if you're newer to church or if you have been bringing somebody with you who's newer, we would love to have that time. The pastors are there, and it just gives an opportunity to have conversations and connections that are kind of tough to have on a Sunday morning as we're all running in different directions. And so I wanted to make sure that you were aware of that. Sunday night, November 21st. Speaking of dinner and food, I was watching a show recently on Netflix by uh, a, a chef named David Chang, who's a famous Korean uh, chef, and he was talking about, in one of his episodes, the way that the restaurant industry is changing because of technology. Um, if any of you are freaked out by robots, do not watch this episode, because robots are taking everything over. <laughs> They're going to be delivering our food eventually. They're going to be cooking our food. As long as they don't eat our food, I'm okay with them, but, but they're going to be doing all of that. And, and it was interesting, because he was talking about all the different ways that the restaurant experience has changed over the years because of technology. And I was thinking, like, one of the ways that in my lifetime I feel like the restaurant experience has changed the most is the way that people order food. So I remember growing up that I would not order, um, you know, when I ordered food, I would basically just pick something on the menu and that would be the end of it. But nowadays, everybody has to have a little conversation with their waiter and waitress as they order their food because everybody's making some sort of adjustment or substitution to the food. Some of you are like that. You know you, know you are. You always have to add a little something extra. Like, and, and sometimes it's because there's an allergy, right? So if you can't have gluten, maybe you say, I don't want croutons on my salad, or I don't want, if you're dairy intolerant, I don't want cheese on my sandwich. That all makes sense. Uh, sometimes it's a diet. You're trying, you know, I want my burger without a bun. I'm trying to eat healthy. Uh, but sometimes it's just preference. I don't like goat cheese. I don't, I don't want this on my salad. And, and we have these whole conversations where we make these substitutions. And basically what we're saying is, I want this, but I don't want this, right? And some substitutions make a lot of sense. One, I was with a friend one time, and we were at Burger King, and, um, and, we, and we got a Whopper. And my friend ordered the Whopper. Anybody else love a Whopper? I love a Whopper. Uh, my friend ordered a Whopper and said, no onions. And I was like, what are you doing? It's not a Whopper anymore. You got a burger. Like, that's the, if, you don't, if your breath doesn't smell terrible after you eat your Whopper, you haven't eaten a Whopper. So I have some issues with some substitutions. But people are like, I want this, and I don't want that. And as we get into the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, I just want to say up front that this is a passage that people often say, I want everything else, but I don't want that. And yesterday, or not yesterday, last week, Pastor Jason, Pastor Vicki, what an amazing next-gen takeover Sunday. They talked about the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, where it's all about Jesus loves you, he has grace for you, he wants to forgive you of your sins, he wants to rescue you, and everybody's like, yeah, I want that. And then Paul shifts into the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, and some people are like, I'm not sure I want that. People say, I want the vertical blessings, but I don't want the horizontal relationships. I just want a relationship with God, but I don't want a relationship with his people. Have you seen his people? <laughs> Have you been around his people? I'll take him, but not them. I want Jesus, but not his people. The problem is, is that that is not at all what God intends for you. In fact, 
That's not what God's offering you. He is not offering you a personal relationship that allows you to isolate yourself and live outside of meaningful life-giving relationship with his family. And in the second half of this chapter, Paul presents this whole scene as almost like a three-act play. The problem, the solution, and the result. And the problem in verses 11 and 12, I'm not going to read them to you, but here's the things that Paul says to the Gentile believers in Ephesus, the non-Jewish believers in Ephesus. He says, here was your problem. You were outsiders. You were called and considered uncircumcised heathens by Jews, which if you don't know, it's not a compliment. (laughs) Uncircumcised heathens. You were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among Israel. You could not be considered part of true Israel. You did not know the covenant promises of God. You were outside of the covenant that God had made with Abram and through his descendants and, through the Jew- and with the Jewish people. And then Paul summarizes it by saying, here's your problem. You were without God and you were without hope. And because salvation came through the Jews, the Gentiles had no hope, no access to God, to salvation, to the covenant blessings This was their problem. But thankfully, there's a solution. And let's read it. Beginning in verse 13, Paul says, buts. It's the wonderful buts in the Bible. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. All these things were true, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him. How? Through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace or shalom, restoration to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. We're going to talk more later about that phrase, wall of hostility, that separated us. How did he do this? Jesus did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace with Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself, in Christ, one new people from these two groups, uniting together Jews and Gentiles in Christ, one new person. Together, as one body, God reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. And I find this verse so interesting because Paul says that Christ reconciled us to God by means of death on the cross, which seems like the next logical thing that Paul would say would be ending our hostility with God, which it did. But Paul doesn't. What does he say? And our hostility toward each other was put to death. What Paul is saying here is you cannot have peace with God without having peace with each other. And if God was going to unite together Jews and Gentiles, we'll talk in a minute about what was so difficult about this relationship at this time in Ephesus and why these words were so shocking and why this new church community was so revolutionary. If God was going to do this then, he wants to continue to do it now. And so we can't have one without the other. We can't have Jesus without his people. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. And what's the result of all this? In verses 17 through 22, I'm not going to read it, but Paul goes on to say, the good news of peace to those who were far from God and to those who are near. The gospel came to the Gentiles and it came to the Jews. We can come to the Father through the Spirit because of what Christ has done. Paul connects the Trinity there. Come to the Father through the Spirit by the work of the Son. And we are no longer strangers and foreigners. 
And then Paul, in the, in the last verses of this chapter, he, he kind of, Paul does this all the time. He wouldn't get a very good grade on an English paper because he mixes his metaphors. He can't just stick with one. He's all over the place. He calls the one new person in Christ, he calls the Gentiles, that you are now citizens in the kingdom, which means you have a, a loyalty, you have a belonging. There is a king to which you belong. But as citizens, we know as American citizens, we don't just belong to a nation. We have a commitment and a responsibility to each other, right, to other citizens. And that's what Paul is saying here. You're citizens. Then he uses this metaphor of family, that you're together, that there's a blood relationship <coughs> because of the blood of Christ. Then he talks about us being a house, that we are a structure in which the cornerstone is Jesus. And the foundation of that house is the teaching and the word of the apostles and the prophets and those who have gone before. And then the last metaphor that Paul chooses, citizens, family, house, then he ups it and says, you are the temple of God. You're a temple. That God is carefully joining together in which his presence will dwell. And so we're left with this question. Why all these metaphors? Why all these illustrations? And I believe it's because Paul wants us to see that the result of life with Christ is life together with his people. Life with God means life with the person you're sitting next to and the person you're sitting in front of and this person you are sitting behind. And what does life mean when we do it together? What does life together mean and why does it matter? And more specifically, the question I really want to lean into this morning is why does gathering together like we're doing right now, why does it matter? Why is it important that we are in church, engaged in church, regularly a part of the gathering of the saints. And you might be thinking, well, this is not exactly what Paul is addressing in this text. He's addressing much bigger things, and I agree. But, but at bare minimum, he's talking about this. He's talking about way more than that. I would say at the bare minimum, Paul is expecting the people, the, the new people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles, together in Christ, that he is expecting them to gather. And there's a real trend that's been happening, and you won't be surprised by this over the years in America and, and, well, Europe and Canada are kind of ahead of us in this, in church engagement and church attendance, the trend of people that come and people that show up. I mean, I grew up at a time where it was normative to go to church two to three times a week. And then it became two to three times a month. And now for a lot of people, it's two to three times a season. And they genuinely believe, I'm engaged. This is my church. I'm built in. I'm part of the family. I'm part of the house. I'm part of the temple. And they just kind of like whenever they can, they come. And I, I really want to push on it a little bit this morning. And I, I recognize pushing on it on the heels of COVID is, is a little tricky. And I just want to preface everything I'm going to say this morning with there are some very legitimate reasons why some people still cannot gather. Some people who have really significant medical conditions. Some people who have to work. I understand that those things happen. My family is home this morning because Caroline is on day 9 of 10 of being quarantined because of an exposure. We have multiple families in our church who aren't here this morning because of that exact reason. I, I get that. Okay, So set all of that aside. But still, even before COVID, the engagement that people had with gathering as a church was really on a downtrend. And Barner did a research um, study, and they showed that from 1993 to 2020, so in less than 30 years, regular church attendance declined in America from 45% to 29%. So in 30 years, 16% decline in people in America who regularly attended church. And this morning, what I really want to talk to you about using this text as a platform is the cost of church, the cost of being in church, the cost of gathering as a church. 
Now, I'm not a salesperson. I think I, I would be a terrible salesperson, but my understanding of sales is that you don't lead with the cost, <laughs> right? When people are trying to sell me a car, they're trying to tell me all the benefits of the car, not just the benefits of the car, but the benefit. They're trying to create a narrative of how my life is going to be better. You're going to be happier when you're driving this car. People are going to look at you differently when you're driving this car, right? They're giving you all the benefits. They're giving you this story. They're giving you this new vision of your life. And then at the end, they go, and this is what it cost, right? I don't want to do that this morning because I think we've done that for too long. We're like, oh, you should come to church. It's good for you. You'll feel happy. You'll, you'll, you'll. People who go to church live longer. There's actually research that says that. There's all this sort of stuff that we could say, but I actually want to lead with the cost. Like, I, I just want you to know that Paul is not trying to pitch something to the Ephesians saying, this is really easy doing life together, Jews and Gentiles. This would be really simple. This would be good for you. You guys will like this. Paul knows this is going to cost you something to be the people of God, to do life together. And so I want to talk about the cost. I've never ever talked about it this way before, and I hope it makes sense. But I want to talk about five things that church costs us, okay? So if, if I'm a salesperson, I'm, I'm going to do a very bad job here. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you what it's going to cost, all right? But I think cost matters because here's my conviction as I've been studying this week. Jesus never offered us a faith that cost us nothing. Who wants a faith that costs them nothing? And there's so many people who are claiming to live out of faith, but it's costing them so little that I'm wondering if it is actually the faith that Jesus offers. And so these, I'm going to frame it in these five uh, sentences or five phrases, the cost of where, the cost of when, the cost of who, the cost of what, and the cost of how. And I know it seems like a lot of points, but I'm going to go pretty quick here. So the cost of where. This morning, those of you that are here, you left where you were to come where we are. You had to change your where. And I understand that changing your where, there is a cost to it, Right? Jeff Tweedy, who's the singer of a band called Wilco, wrote a book, a memoir about his life, and I loved his title. His title was simply, Let's Go, and then in parentheses, So We Can Get Back. And he said, growing up, this was his dad. His dad would always be like, ugh. His dad didn't like to go places, so he's like, let's go so we can get back. And it's that mentality of like, I'll leave where I am, but only because I, the sooner I leave where I am, I can get back to where I am, Right? And I understand that there is a cost, there is a, there's a literal cost. You put gas into your vehicle, right? It costs you money to drive here. There's wear and tear. Some of you drive 30 miles or more here to be here on a Sunday morning. There is a cost to the wear of gathering together. There's the cost of the convenience and comfort. I mean, how many of you found it during shutdown, although I know we all missed each other and none of us enjoyed that season, how many of us honestly found it pretty comfortable and convenient just to stay in our jammies and watch church? Listen, I get it. I'm a, I'm a creature of comfort. Like, I, I'd be happy to be in sweats right now at home uh, doing this. I get it. There is a cost. We have to lay down the comfort and convenience of another hour of sleep, or in some cases, another hours, more hours of sleep, uh, wearing what, you know, most of us, you know, you, you have to, like, put yourself together somewhat, you know. Uh, you got to get dressed. And, and listen, if you have kids, the cost is significant because you got to get them up. You got to get them fed. You got to get them out the door. I see these poor families coming in with their children. They're, they're like, racing to get here. And, and I get it. That's a cost, right? That cost us something. There's the cost of wear. There's the cost of the time it takes to get here and be here, but also the time it costs to get ready to get here and be here. And this, I get it. So there's the cost of where. Secondly, there's the cost of when. 
When I was, when I was growing up, well, for, well, when I was little, we, we weren't allowed to watch much TV. It was Little House on the Prairie, and that was literally all we watched. But as I got a little older and was able to make my own decisions, uh, I started to watch some other shows. And one of the biggest changes in television over the years has been, how, how many of you remember where you, if you liked a show, if you had a favorite show, you had to schedule your social life around that show. You had one shot a week to watch that show. For me growing up, that was the show ER, Thursday nights at 10 p.m. And if I was gonna watch the newest episode of ER, I was going to be home by 10 p.m. sitting in front of my TV and during all those commercials, because there was no DVR, no fast forwarding, to watch it. No one does that anymore, right? No one schedules their social life around television shows, maybe around sporting events, but not television shows. Because why? We record it, or we go online and we find a stream and we watch it later. We have this on-demand way of consuming entertainment that didn't used to exist. Now, going to church, the cost of when means you don't get to pick the time. It's nine or it's 11 if you're coming to Sundays. Like it's one or the other. And there is something really wonderful about saying, I'll take church in on my schedule. I'll get to it when I can. It's more convenient. But there's a cost, it's the cost of when. It's submitting to a time chosen by someone else to gather instead of having what I would call an on-demand faith. I'll take it when I can. See, when it comes to environments in which we have to contribute or commit, like work, we don't get to choose when, right? How many of you told your boss, I don't really like the starting time of my day. I'll, I'll show up when I feel like showing up. Why? Because you're there to commit and you're there to contribute. We can't choose the when. But when it's things that we consume, like television shows, then we can choose the time on demand. So the question is, which is church? Is church a commitment and a contributing environment for you? Or is it a consuming environment for you? And if it's a consuming environment, then by all means, on demand, whenever you can get to it. But if you see church to be a commitment and a contribution, then there's going to be the cost of win. And I get that our services online is a gift, and I'm thankful we can do it. I'm so thankful to the team that made it possible. COVID, if there was a silver lining in it all, it made us figure out stuff that we should have figured out a long time ago about getting our services online. There's value because some of you travel, some of you get sick, some of you have to work. And I hope if you miss church, you don't miss church. I hope you watch it later. I hope you follow up because there's a word here every week for you as part of the people of God to hear. However, we gotta be careful about what convenience does to our lives. In that same show, David Chang, that food show, David Chang said, the fu- he was talking about the food industry. And he said this, he said, the future of the food industry is convenience across the board. He said, you think it's convenient now, just wait. We can't even imagine how convenient food is gonna get in the next 10 to 20 years, how fast we're gonna have the food that we want. But then he asked this question, but what is the cost of convenience? And there may be a cost to convenience when it comes to our faith as well. And so the cost of when has a formative power on saying, I won't consume on my schedule. I will, sur- I will submit to a schedule where I have to contribute and commit. Okay, third, the cost of who. Now, when Paul writes this letter in Ephesus, he's sitting in jail. And we know why he's in jail, actually. 
Paul's in jail because he's been charged with taking a Gentile inside the temple in Jerusalem, which is a massive crime. It was such a big deal, actually, <coughs> that the Romans permitted Jewish leaders to execute violators of this law. So if you were a Jewish person, person and you snuck a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the temple, in so desecrating the temple, the Jewish leaders could put you to death. And this is what Paul is in prison. He's been falsely accused of having done this. And so in verse 14, when Paul, I said we're going to get back to it later, when Paul talked about the wall of hostility, or some translations say the dividing wall, all the readers knew Paul's situation and knew what he was going through, and he was referencing that there was a literal wall inside the temple that you could not cross if you were a Gentile, and there were warnings on the wall, written on the wall, saying if you go past this wall of hostility, if you go past this dividing wall, it will be and you're not a Jewish person, and you're not clean, and you're not ceremonially ready for this, it will be death, it could be death to you. And so when Paul says that Jesus obliterated the wall of hostility. All of them knew, all of the audience knew what he was talking about. Paul was saying that the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles was shattered in Christ. Now, that sounds wonderful, but I just want to say this was hard for them to hear. And here's why. Here's some things that had happened recently in history at this time. Gentile residents of Caesarea had slaughtered thousands of its Jewish residents. So the Jews retaliated, and they attacked other cities. And then the Syrians retaliated, and slaughtered thousands more Jews, thousands more of Jews, I should say. This is all happening at this time when Paul is saying that God has made, because of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, one new person in Christ. You, you get a sense of how shocking this would have been to the people in Ephesus. This is what's happening. But what, what Paul is saying is that in Christ, there is a way to be a people that supersedes all of our other differences, and the cost of who is when you submit to gathering at a local church instead of just the people that you like, you're in a room right now with people that you don't agree with on lots of different issues. And there's a cost to that, submitting yourself to relationship with other people. Earlier this week in our Read Together plan, Bethany Anderson left a comment in there. She said, we cannot be united if we are busy pointing out each other's faults. I thought that's so true. What an enemy of the unity that Christ wants to offer us and we're too busy not just pointing out each other's faults but looking for faults, eager to find reasons to point out faults in others. Our staff is reading this book together right now by Rich Velotis, a pastor in New York City. And he, earlier this week we read this. And I thought this was really relevant to this idea of the cost of who. He says, in the calling of his disciples, Jesus put people together who would most certainly not follow each other on Twitter. Yet, in the forming of this small community, he was symbolically making a statement that in the kingdom of God, a new family was being created. You're part of a new family. You're not just someone who walks into a building once a week. You have a new family. A quick glance of two of the disciples bring out this truth. And if you've watched the show, The Chosen, they do such a great job of highlighting this. Consider Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Think about them. Matthew worked for the government. Simon hated the government. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon, a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue for the Romans. Simon was a rebel against the Romans. Matthew was wealthy. Simon was working class. Matthew made a living taking advantage of people like Simon. Simon made a living trying to kill people like Matthew. And Jesus called them both. And then he said this, despite all these differences, somehow Matthew and Simon were able to remain connected, but it cost them something. Simon had to stop taking, or Matthew had to stop taking advantage of people like Simon. Simon had to embrace a different vision of revolution. 
This is the essence of the new family Jesus was created. Reconciliation and community will always cost us something. And in Christ, the barriers that separate us come down in his name. It jumped out at me that for Matthew and Simon the Zealot to do life together and to both be followers of Jesus, it cost them both something. And it's the cost of who? Fourth thing, the cost of what? Saying yes to one thing means saying no to many other things, right? We have limited time. If I say yes to hang out with you for an hour, then I've said no to everything else I could have done for that hour. Coming to church, I get it, regularly on Sundays, you're saying no to other things to be here. Maybe you're saying no to extra sleep. Maybe you're saying no to brunch. You guys work hard. I know many of you work Monday through Friday. Some of you work six days a week. This is your day. This is your, I mean, I, I get it. There's other things that you could be doing. You have friends that gather on Sunday mornings that go out to breakfast together. There are, there's the cost of what? All the other what's that you could be doing. But your cost, the cost means rearranging our lives to reflect our faith and our commitments your priorities are made clear to others in what you say yes to consistently, right? If I consistently say yes to going out to shoot hoops, it reveals something about my priorities, that I love basketball, right? If I consistently, consistently, consistently say yes to going shopping, then it reveals something about my priorities, that I love, I love shopping. I love spending my money and buying stuff. What you consistently say yes to reveals to other people and parents, it reveals to your kids what your priorities are are, right? What matters most? And what I've learned is that what I consider to be optional, my kids will eventually think to be unimportant. And if kids grow up in a home where church is just one of many options on a Sunday morning, eventually they're going to think, potentially, not always, but eventually they're going to think, this must, it must not be important because school's never optional to me, and that's very important, and work's never optional to my parents, so that must be very important, but going to church, very optional. And what we're communicating is something about our priorities. The last thing, we're going to finish. I have the band come up. The cost of how. There is increasingly a stigma associated with being a church-going person in our country. And I don't want to make too much of this because actually in my experience, a lot of times when I talk to people who don't go to church and they find I'm a pastor, they're not mean to me. They're not antagonistic. They don't talk bad. They don't, I don't necessarily think we're there as a country. But there certainly is some stigma to being like, Okay, so you go to church, but just every now and then, right? You're not, like, really committed. You're not, like, devout, right? You're not a fanatic, right? Like, everybody's just like, you don't, like, you're not, like, a born-againer, right? Like, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff. And, and there is a cost to how you and I will be perceived because we have committed ourselves to a new family, a new group of people that we give our lives to and for. Now, in closing, how can cost be a good thing? Cost is a good thing, and the reason why I've talked all about cost is because a costless faith is not seen in the life of Jesus. His faith cost him everything. A convenient faith is not offered by Jesus. A faith on my terms and at my times is not what Paul is writing about here. And who wants to have a faith or an expression of faith that costs them nothing? Listen, being a part of, my whole point this morning is this, being a part of a church will cost you, but... Being apart from the church will cost you too. Let me say it again. Being a part of a church will cost you, but being apart from the church will cost you. The question is, which cost are you willing to pay? Which cost will you pay? The cost of being a part of a people or the cost of being apart from God's people? And, I, and as I prepped this this week, I did have this momentary thought where I almost bailed on this whole thing because I thought, 
It's embarrassing in America to talk about what it costs to go to church. It's embarrassing. It's to our shame. When brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world, what it costs them to go to church is their lives. What it costs some people around the world to go to church is the opportunity to get a promotion at work or the opportunity to feel safe at night. So I want us to consider that, you know, before we walk out here going, boy, I do pay a really big cost. He made a good point. We don't pay anything compared to what some people around the world pay to be a part of the family of God and to gather. And what is our motivation for paying the cost? Well, not only does the church cost us something, but the church cost Jesus something. And we read it. Let's read it again right here. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. The church cost Jesus everything. He gave everything for the church. His where, he left heaven to come to earth. His when, he submitted to the timing of the Father. His who, he was among the rejected, the losers, the outsiders, he was a nobody. The what, he gave up everything to say yes to us. The how, he was misunderstood, he was wrongly accused, he was unfairly tried, and then he was executed as a criminal on a Roman cross. Why? For the church. So that he could unite in him the Gentiles and the Jews into one new person so that we might be his people, living for his glory, willing to pay any cost to glorify and honor him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we wanna say thank you for the cost that your son paid to make us your people, to make us a home of which the cornerstone is Jesus, to build us carefully into a temple hand-selecting each of us, placing us carefully upon each other's lives so that we might form each other, grow each other, strengthen each other, challenge each other. We give you thanks. This morning, before we sing this closing song about how we are available, I know if you're sitting here this morning, you might be thinking, well, you're, David, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I'm here. But the question is, is where is our commitment? What cost are we willing to pay? Is our faith a faith of convenience or is it a faith of cost? Jesus, teach us to gladly pay the cost because you've done it for us first. We pray these things in your name. Amen.